Good morning, fellas. So good to see you all today. I know we're all tired for watching the Grizz. Grizz and Seven. Oh, so good to be here with you. Uh, go ahead and uh, flip it up in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to continue on in this subsection of prayers of the church. As you're turning to Philippians 1, just a little bit of context uh, you know, for your history of aficionados. You remember that uh, Philippi is actually named after Alexander the Great's dad, Philip. And this was actually the location of where Mark Antony Octavius avenged Julius Caesar's death. So <laughs> Philippi had a, a, a great place of honor in the Roman Empire. I think second really only to Rome. Um, if you were living in Philippi, you were living large. You enjoyed all the rights and privileges that were uh, uh, yours as a Roman. But about 10 years prior to this letter being written, all of that changed. A guy showed up to town, and his name was the Apostle Paul, and he starts doing what the Apostle Paul always does. He starts preaching the gospel, and everything got messy. Now, for example, first off, a very well-to-do, very posh lady named Lydia came to Christ hearing him preach the gospel. Then her entire family came to Christ, too. Her household was baptized, and what do they do? They, they start evangelizing. Secondly, this uh, demon-possessed woman, a fortune teller, she came to Christ. And that really made the townsfolk mad because they were making money off this poor lady. Now, that actually sent Paul to prison. Right? They didn't take kindly to them ruining their income, and so they sent him to prison. But what happens while he's in prison? He and Silas start singing songs like Lead On King Eternal, whatever they were singing. They were singing hymns and, and praying aloud, and one of those jailers actually comes to Christ. He and his family are baptized. And so they go on and preaching the gospel. Now, by the time Paul is released from prison, they release him from prison, by the way, because they remember that he's, oh, he's a Roman citizen. We can't, we can't keep a Roman citizen in prison. So they let him and Silas go. But by the time they leave prison, there's a small church that started in Philippi. And that small church grows and grows and grows. Ten years later, Paul is in prison yet again. And while in prison, he starts remembering this church in Philippi. Maybe it's because the last time he was there, he was also in prison. And he's thinking here about his time, and I'm in prison again, and oh, I wonder what those Christians in Philippi are up to. So he writes this letter for a number of reasons, primarily to encourage this church, which was so near and dear to his heart. When we read verses 7 and 8, you'll see how much he loved this church. And as an outgrowth of his love for this church, the first thing that he does in this letter is he prays for them. As we've seen elsewhere, what we're going to learn in this prayer is a whole lot of wonderful things about the Lord, but even more about how we can pray for one another and our friendship and fellowship. So let us read, starting in verse 3, and we'll go through verse 11. Philippians chapter 1, hear the word of God. Paul writes, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you all are partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent 
And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for my friends in this room. I'm so thankful for your word. We all are thankful for your word that you give us that not only may we may learn more of you and your love for us, but that through the work of your spirit that we might become more and more like your beloved son. Would you do this work in us this morning, O God, for our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, when theologian Broughton Knox was serving as a young chaplain in the British Navy on a ship preparing for D-Day, young chaplain, he noted in his journal that the minds of all of the soldiers on board, regardless of their rank, were focused on the invasion's success. And this is what he wrote in his journal. No one thought of his own interests, but only how they could help their shipmates and their commonly shared task. I remembered noting in my mind at the time how we had never been happier, which is kind of strange. After the invasion's success, and they were able to complete their task of the mission, they were able to return back to England. And on their way back to England, they noticed that the environment on the ship had changed a bit, so much so that many of the soldiers went to go talk to Knox and ask him why. Why does it feel different? And this is what Knox said. The answer is simple. Prior to the invasion, our thoughts had a minimum of self-centeredness in them because we gave ourselves to the task at hand and we gave ourselves to each other. Unfortunately, now we've reverted back to normal. Uh, Philip Hughes, in his commentary on this, or Kent Hughes, rather, he wrote this. Knox, of course, was reflecting on the ship's experience of fellowship that people enjoy in pursuing a common goal. Friendship is a great thing, but fellowship goes well beyond it. It occurs among friends who are committed to a common goal, and it flourishes in their pursuit of it. I like that story, and I like Hughes's comments, because those images, I feel like they are all over the place in Philippians, particularly in Philippians chapter 1. This early church was in the middle of a conflict. I mean, there weren't ships and bullets and Nazis or anything, but it was a spiritual conflict, spiritual warfare. And they had a common goal. They had a common task at hand to know Christ, to live like Christ, and to make Christ known. And at the center of all of it was fellowship. But this fellowship that Paul enjoyed with these early believers, it goes well beyond any earthly fellowship. And the reason is, is because their fellowship was rooted in God and their quest could only be described as eternal. So here's Paul in prison and he's reminded of these things. And it causes his heart to be filled with joy and it causes him to pray. Brothers, the reality is you and I are in that same conflict. It's not a one of flesh and blood, but it's just of spiritual nature that Paul says elsewhere. We have the same common goal, you and I, to know Jesus, to live like Jesus, and to make Jesus known. And you and I have that same fellowship that Paul and that early church enjoyed. In fact, we're in fellowship with them. And it's for these reasons I believe that God's desire for us is that when we pray for each other in this journey to the throne of grace, our prayers would be the same as Paul's in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. In these verses, he has two different types of prayer. He has a prayer of thanksgiving, 
and a prayer of intercession. We're going to look at them in turn and try to apply them together. But first and foremost, if you just look at verses 3 through 6, we see that Paul first prays a prayer of joyful thanksgiving. Now, this is like the 20th talk we've had on prayer. <laughs> and all the pastors up here, I think we've all given a definition of what prayer is. So you have like 20 definitions of prayer. And I'm quite certain that one of us has quoted the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm going to do it again. Uh, ver or question 98, the question is, what is prayer? And the Westminster Divines answer it this way. Prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Jesus. One, with confession of sin. And two, thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. In other words, the very essence of Christian prayer is a thankfulness towards God at least in part. And, and that makes sense, right? Because we know from Paul's letter to the Colossians, a very essence of being a Christian is having a posture of thankfulness, and therefore the essence of Christian prayer ought to be thankfulness towards God. And that's exactly what we see in Paul's prayer in verses 3 through 6. He is just gushing with thanksgiving, and there's three things that he thanks God for, three things that you and I ought to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving for as well. First, we see this in verse 3 and 4. The first thing that he's thankful for, it's often glossed over in commentaries and other sermons, but it's clear as day. In verses 3 and 4, Paul is thankful for people. He is thankful for the friendship he has with these Christians. Notice the first thing that he says in one of the most quoted letters of Paul. He says, I thank God in all of my remembrance of you. Which, first off, I find astounding that this man is thinking about anything other than himself and his own circumstances. Because remember, the guy's in prison, okay? And presumably, this is not a fun prison. This is not club-fed. He's not getting his degree on the side. He's not having golf lessons on Wednesdays with the other inmates, okay? This is a Roman prison. And so here he is by himself, behind bars, probably freshly beaten. And what does he start doing? He starts thinking about his friends in Philippi. The faces of those folks in that church that he loves so much begin to flash before his eyes. Probably Lydia, the first convert that he had, and her family. Most likely, too, the Philippian jailer. Here he is in jail. Why would he not be thinking about the Philippian jailer that came to Christ because he and Silas were singing spiritual songs? And maybe he's thinking to himself, mate, that could happen again. What are those songs? I, I mean, he could be thinking that, but, but here he is by himself, and he starts thinking about all of these faces, all of these friends that he had. And in that horrible situation, a smile envelops his face. He is filled with joy. And what does he say? He says, I thank God in my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Isn't that amazing? If you just think about really his real life circumstances and what he says there. I mean, there's so many observations that we could take from this, chief among them, would be his other-centeredness. I mean, incredibly other-centered. He's not worried about himself, but he's worried about these people. And so he's praying for them. He's really modeling the mindset of Jesus that he talks about in Philippians 2, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? And Paul commands us, and he's living this way too, that, that we not only look to our own interests, but also the interests of others, that we count them more significant than ourselves, which we are called to do. I mean, that's clearly just seen here in Paul. But the observation I want to make as it relates to our text today and our theme today is this. It is very rare in Paul's letters to find him giving thanks to God for things. 
I can't remember one time when he actually, and he might do that, but I can't remember one time where he just sits down and thanks God for things. Thank you, God, for these things that I just inherited from mom and dad. Or thank you, God, for this, that, or the other. I don't ever remember him thanking God for things. But what we do see in every single letter is Paul giving thanks for people. Just think about Romans 16, an entire chapter in Paul's most important letter in all of his writings is essentially the white pages of the who's who in the Christian church in the Roman Empire. A list of no less than 33 people that Paul knew by name. He knew the circumstances of their life. He knows whose mama was who. And he thanked God for them. I think it's clear just looking at Paul's letters in that regard, outside of his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, his most important resource, his most prized possession were people. Christians that he had the privilege of knowing and befriending. And in spite of the fact that surely a number of those folks caused Paul trouble. I mean, seriously. Of all the folks that Paul knew and came into contact with, I'm sure some of them rubbed Paul the wrong way, right? But Paul says, in all of my remembrance of you, which indicates that Paul chose not to remember those moments of them bothering him. In all of my remembrance of you, you are a source of my joy and thanksgiving to God. Friends, what if we chose in our relationships with one another to go that same route? If we just chose not to remember those times where we rubbed each other the wrong way, where we kept short accounts, and the only receipts that we kept and remembered was the good that we saw in each other's life that led us to not only thank God for each other, but to actually tell each other how thankful we are. I mean, just think, what would it do for you if someone in this room, before you left work, came up to you and said, you know what, Bill, I just want you to know that I'm just really thankful God made you. I mean, seriously, you are a constant encouragement to me. And, you know, I know that you didn't know that, but I just, you're a great father and husband. It's, it's, it's influenced me in my own relationships. I'm just thankful to the Lord that he placed you in my life. That's all I got. Have a great day at work. I mean, what, what, what would that do to you? I'm sure it would have the same effect that it did in the original audience when Paul said it to them. It would fill you with joy. So just first, Paul is thankful to God for the relationships that he had with these other Christians. He didn't take them lightly. Secondly, if you look at verse 5, Paul is also thankful for this fellowship. Yes, Paul was thankful for the fact that, that he was in relationship with these people, they had a friendship, but specifically, he was thankful for the fellowship they enjoyed. Look at verse 5. He goes, I thank God in all of my remembrance of you, verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel. In the Greek, another word for partnership is fellowship. Now, we already said the fellowship in which he enjoyed with this church is far greater than like a Rotary Club fellowship, okay? It's far greater than any earthly fellowship. And the reason for that, I like what Gordon Fee, author, says. He says it was because their fellowship was a three-way bond between Paul and his friends in Christ. So Paul was in a relationship with these people, but on top of that, uniting it together, circulating through this relationship they just had as being friends, was their commonality of being in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know C.S. Lewis, he, I'm going to butcher this, but he talks about it as the secret red thread that Christian friends have. 
Everybody out there makes friends with those who are in their same affinity groups or shared common interests. Everybody's like that. Two Cubs fans are going to probably be friends because they have something to talk about. They both like lovable losers. Grizzlies fans are going to be generally friends with one another, right, because they are in the same hometown and they, they, want, to pull for, they want to pull for the Grizz. And that, that's normal. Christians do that just like the rest of the world. But what's different is that Christians also have that secret red thread, that shared commonality of being washed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just different. It's something that actually is so significantly stronger that a Christian will have a better relationship with another Christian that does not have the shared affinity than he does with a non-Christian who does. That is why. Sometimes you see a Cubs fan being best friends with a Cardinals fan. That's why sometimes Grizzlies fans like Lakers. I mean, I know that's heresy in the world of sports, but that's what the gospel does. It breaks down barriers and it unites people more strongly than they were united before. It's a gift, this fellowship, that goes far beyond any other relationship we can have in this life. That's why some of you are, are closer to friends that you have in church, Christians, than you are with some of your own relatives who aren't believers. You still love your relatives, but there's a new relationship you have, a greater relationship, an eternal relationship you enjoy with another believer. And so Paul goes on to explain how beautiful this fellowship is later in the, in the text. In verse 7, he says, they are partakers. Again, another word for fellowship. They are partakers in grace. That Paul and these Christians both know what it's like to once have been dead, but now made alive in the Lord Jesus, all by the grace of God. That unites people together who are on death's doorstep, but are now made spiritually alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's a whole new relationship. Chapter 2, verse 1, it was a fellowship in the Holy Spirit. Same mind, same spirit. Both of them were indwelt by the Spirit of God. Try to explain that to a non-believer. You, you can hardly explain it intellectually. You certainly can't describe it what it feels like to be a home for the living God. But you can with another believer. You have the same spirit. Chapter 3, verse 10, fellowship in Christ's sufferings, which of course was not a negative, but a privilege that they got to live like Christ in this life for his glory. People look at us, why in the world are you choosing to suffer? Ah, because you don't know Christ. Then, of course, in verse 5, they were partners in the gospel, making known together the name of Jesus and the power of the gospel. It's this gift of fellowship that Paul was thankful for. Now, in the church circles we are in around, you know, we throw around that word fellowship quite often. You know, usually it's referring to, you know, Wednesday night suppers at the church. Let's have fellowship over fried chicken, you know. Or after Sunday school, let's have donuts. Let's have fellowship and donuts. We put that in our emails. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good things. But that's not the fellowship that Paul's talking about. That's not the kind of fellowship that he's praying that we would have and enjoy and give thanks for. He is praying for that three-way bond in Christ, sharing the common cause of proclaiming Christ to whoever will listen, reaching out together to those in need, living this divine, other-centered, directed life rejoicing in the hope that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, of knowing Christ, living like Christ, and making him known. And Paul enjoyed that, this beautiful gift with these other believers, and so he thanked God for it. 
And it's something that we ought to pursue and thank God for as well. Lastly, he is thankful for gospel assurance in verse 6. I guess you could say all of Paul's thanksgiving in this passage is grounded in his thankfulness for gospel assurance. What does Paul say? He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who in here loves that verse? I mean, that's like one of my favorites. <laughs> that's one of the first verses that we remember, uh, memorized as new believers. I mean, it's, it's awesome. But think about what it would have been like to have been the original hearer of that, to hear Paul say that to you. I mean, just think about, I don't know, let's imagine we're Lydia. And Paul is speaking right to you. Lydia, I know this life is hard. I'm in prison, like for like the 10th time. I know it's hard. And I know that you have sacrificed so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. You had an amazingly cush life before you met him. And you've made decisions since then that, that has kind of gotten you out of those circles. Some of your extended family is persecuting you. Your coworkers, those in your neighborhood are persecuting now. Why are you living this way, Lydia? And I know that's hard. And I know that you've suffered. But sister, listen to me. There is something coming to you. A weight of glory that far exceeds any suffering you've experienced in this life. And furthermore, Lydia, I know that you struggle with sin. I remember when I met you and you were talking to me about these things that you were struggling with in your life. And I know that it depresses you and I know that it causes you to worry. But this weight of glory that's coming to you, Lydia, in Jesus Christ is an assured reality. I mean, don't you remember when we first met, Acts chapter 16, verse 14? The Lord opened your heart, Lydia, to pay attention to what I said. You didn't do that. The Lord brought you to that place where I was preaching. The Lord opened your ears. That wasn't you. The Lord chose you before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. It was his sovereign initiative. And Lydia, it is God's sovereign faithfulness that will see you through to the end because God finishes what he starts in his people. That would all, that, that, that's all that Lydia and the rest of that church would have needed. This, this assurance to be encouraged to continue on in this common cause of living for Christ and making him known to the day of glory. And friends, that's exactly what Jesus did with Peter, by the way. Luke 22, before Peter denies Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Peter, Satan demanded to have you. What would it have been like to hear Jesus say that to you? Peter, Satan demanded to have you, but I have prayed that your faith will not fail. And of course, his faith faltered, but it did not fail. And what does Jesus say right after that? Peter, when you have turned again, Peter probably have no idea what Jesus is talking about right there, but this is what Jesus is talking about. Peter, you're about to deny me three times. But after you repent and after you're restored to me, this is what I want you to do. I want you to strengthen the brothers. And I guarantee you that Peter strengthened the brothers the exact same way that Paul is strengthening this church right now from personal experiences of the assurance of faith. And I bet you that Peter would have said, remember, partakers in the gospel, you will fail and struggle in this life. I'm proof in the pudding. But remember what Jesus says. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I know from experience. And that's what Paul is doing for these Christians while he's in prison. He's like, guys, this is worth it. And you can be assured that it will happen, that one day he will complete the good work he has started in you. So here is Paul. He's in prison, rotten away. 
And his mind drifts to his friends, and he thanks God for them. He thanks God for their friendship. He thanks God for their fellowship. And most of all, he thanks God for his omnipotent grip of grace that he has around Paul in this church. And so, friends, let us give thanks for one another. Let us give thanks for the fellowship that God has produced in this room. Some of you have been in this fellowship for 22 years. That's a gift. And let us praise God for his omnipotent grip of grace that he has around each of us. Now, secondly, it's actually in that confidence of gospel assurance that Paul launches into his second prayer, type of prayer anyway, his prayer of intercession that we see in verses 9 through 11. Now, in verses 3 through 6, Paul is showing us the posture of his heart when he prays and why he prays. It's all having to do with thanksgiving. But now he actually shows us what he prays in his prayers of intercession. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you've read his book, uh, Life Together, he says that Christian fellowship both exists and lives in the intercessions of its members. (laughs) And I tend to agree with that. I value and cherish your prayers for me. So please continue to. But in this letter, Paul is showing us there's plenty of things that you and I should pray for one another in this journey together. But in verses 9 through 11, he shows what we must be praying for each other. Okay, so there's three things. First off, he prays in verse 9 for abounding love, which is amazing that that's his first chief prayer request for us in this room, for, for the Philippian church, but for us too, that we would abound in love. Just think about Paul. Paul's the pastor. He's the shepherd of these people. He cares about them. He's looking out for them. So here's in his prison. He knows that he can't be with them any longer. So he's thinking to himself, okay, okay. What do my friends need? What do they need most in this life? What's going to fuel their fellowship together? What's going to fuel their commitment to the mission in which God has caused them, called them to? What, what do they most need in this? Friends, what do we most need, right? What do our congregations most need? What does this room most need? What do our children most need? Paul says, I got it. I'm going to pray that they would abound in love more and more and more. That's what they most need. Now, I'm sure some of those original hearers said, thanks, Paul, for the, for the Christian words, but I could really use another job right now, or I could really use that girlfriend over there that I've been eyeing. I mean, I, th- those are the things I, mo- if I had those things, my life would be, no, no, no. Paul says, what you most need is to abound in love more and more and more. Two observations. First off, Paul is praying for a specific kind of love. Because if you think about it, it's a little unusual that he prays this. I mean, this is a very healthy church. Any commentary you'll read will say that this is probably the healthiest church in which Paul writes. I mean, they are abounding in all sorts of things. So it's unusual that Paul prays for this unless we understand what kind of love he's praying for. He's not praying for filial love, brotherly love. In the Greek, he is praying that we would abound in agape love. Now, you've heard this a million times from your pastors. Agape love is the divine love of God. It's his other-centered, sacrificial, self-emptying love. And so Paul is praying that we would abound more and more in that. Furthermore, you'll notice in that verse, in verse 9, that there's not an object to this prayer. You know, he's not saying, I hope you abound more and more in love for uh you know, for John or whoever. There's not an object to this prayer request. So it kind of seems like this is a general prayer of increase in agape love. 
Scholars say, even though it's not written, it is implied. And this is why they say that. Paul is an Old Testament guy. All of his writings are highly influenced by his Old Testament worldview. I mean, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he interpreted the life of Jesus and what the church is supposed to be doing based off what he knows in the Old Testament scriptures. And what's like the chief ten in the Old Testament scriptures? It's the Ten Commandments, the law of God. You have the first tablet. Those first four laws are our commands, first off, to love God. Then there's the second tablet, the last six commands, our commands to love other people. Jesus himself in the New Testament summarizes the entirety of the law with the two great commandments, to love God and to love others. So scholars say what Paul is praying for us to abound in here, what he's praying for, is that you and I would have an unremitting geyser of love produced in our hearts for God and that it would grow and grow and grow until it erupts and spills out into a flood on all of the people around us. That we would love them just as much and just like God loves us. And he's praying, I hope that abounds in you more and what's going to cause your fellowship to thrive? What's going to call your, cause you to be more zealous for the mission of God? For you to abound in the love of God grows more and more and more until it just erupts in your life and spills out to everybody around you, to the degree to which you are loving God, you're going to love other people. So he prays for a very specific love. Secondly, he prays that this very specific love grows in a very specific way. Look at 9b. He says two words. For you gardeners out there, imagine that these words are stakes in the ground that you put around a new plant that causes that plant to grow upright so it won't bend and so it'll grow straight and true. Now, what are these two stakes? First off, he says, I pray that your love would abound with knowledge. I am so thankful that he uses that word knowledge. I think it's particularly relevant today where most people out in the world assume love is primarily, you know, sentiment or um, emotion. You know, we have those cultural proverbs like love is blind. You know, you know have y'all heard that? Love is blind as if ignorance is part and parcel to love. You just feel it. You know it when you feel it. I'm so tired of that nonsense, okay? I love what Kent Hughes says. He says, listen, a virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is never a virtue. We grow in our love for God and therefore other people by knowing God more. And that's the knowledge that Paul is talking about here. I pray that you would abound in love with knowledge. Knowledge of what? Math? No, knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul uses that word knowledge 15 times in his other letters. In every single case, it's referring to knowledge of God and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian love at first is not emotion, but rather it's something that the Holy Spirit produces in our life through the revelation of Christ causing his word to come home to us. So how do we illustrate this? Just in your marriages, for those of you that are married. When you get married to your wife, you love her. But the longer that you stayed married to her, the more that you know her. And the more that you know her, the more you fall in love with her. I mean, isn't that how it works? When we first get married, there's that, you know, that eros love. You're just really excited to finally be married to the apple of your eye. And you're, oh, you're going to a honeymoon. And, you know, whether if it's Pickwick Lake or, you know, the Caribbean, either way, you're just so excited to be with this person that, that is just, you love so much and you think, oh, this is never going to get greater than this. What a bunch of hooey. It gets so much better than that. So much better. 
because you get to know that person more. You never get to the top of knowledge of your spouse because she's always changing, but you get to know her more and more and you get to know all the warts inside and out. But the more that you know her, the more that you just love her. It's kind of like a fine wine. You start out with a boxed wine, right? Like yellowtail. But then over the years, it just it's like a $300 bottle of France. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. And that's what Paul is saying here. You are in Christ. He loves you. You love him. But I pray that you would know him more, that you would know how great he is, how great he loves you. And the more that you know of him, the more you're going to love him. And therefore, the more you're going to love other people. So I, really, this is a call for us to put our noses in the word of God so that we can know how great our king is. And knowing how great he is, knowing how greatly he loves us, we're just going to increase in our love for him and our love for other people. The second stake is that our love would abound with insight. All insight. That's the NIV version of discernment. Now, insight, another Bible word for insight is wisdom. If you've been coming to our Proverbs study on Sunday nights, you know that the beginning of wisdom, or if you just read Proverbs, is the fear of the Lord. We also know that the fear of the Lord is actually being like afraid of God. We're not scared of him. Right? So what does it mean to be uh, fearful of the Lord? That means that we actually revere him. And by revering him, we actually believe what he says to us. If you, if you revere God, you believe that, wow, this really is God's word to us. And, and these really are his commands to us. This really gives me life. And as we revere God and, and therefore believe his word, we're going to drink deeply from his word on a daily basis so that we might think and live in a way in which is pleasing to him. That's what it means to, to walk in wisdom, by the way. And we need, so he's praying that we, would, that we would grow in wisdom, essentially. And friends, I'm just going to suggest to you that the primary way we do that, along with God's word, is that we find ourselves in a small group. Because I want to tell you right now, I need your help to know how to apply the gospel daily to my life. I mean, I feel like I'm floundering as a, as a dad of two little ankle biters. They're, you know, I'm, I never sleep. You know, I, I, so I need help to know how to, to be a Christian husband from you guys who have been in there for, you know, 40, 50 years. How do I be a Christian banker? How, how do I live out the Christian life as a lawyer in this world? We need help to apply the gospel to our daily living. And that's what Paul is praying for. So Paul is saying, what do these people need most? They don't need stuff. What is the thing that's going to cause them just to advance in their fellowship with one another and their love for other people and the, and the command in which Christ has given them to make Jesus known? I pray that there would be an unremitting geyser of love in their life for God. And it would grow and grow and grow and it would spill out onto everybody around them. A love that is guarded and guided by the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God. Now, the second thing he prays for, and this is kind of strange, but not so much if you understand Paul. He prays for our ability in assessing what is best, 10A. Every single one of us have a thousand decisions that we're going to make today before we get to our beds tonight. <laughs> and not all of them are important, but not one of them is insignificant. Right? Because one decision after another decision constitutes a path in which you're walking even if it's a, a small decision. If you make a decision after another decision, you're walking in a certain way. And so that's significant. In Proverbs, again, are we on the road of folly or are we on the road of wisdom? 
So Alistair Begg says in his commentary that one of the most important skills then in this Christian life is not really the ability to discern what is good and evil. Because as Christians, we generally know what is good. We don't always make the best decisions. But we generally know what is good and evil. Therefore, the greatest skill in the Christian life is to decide what is best among the good. Right? So, for example, when Paul says, approve of what is excellent, he is saying as those who are in Jesus Christ, based off our knowledge of Christ, we are able to discern what is essential for the faith in our lives and others. And his prayer is that we would actually be able to employ that skill set. And which, by the way, if we are in Jesus and we're growing in our knowledge of Jesus, we have that skill set. So how do we employ it? Alistair Begg says it comes down to two questions to every decision that we come and cross with. First, ask yourself, is this right? Meaning, is this in alignment with God's will? I mean, is this a sin or isn't it? If it's not a sin, if it's right, if it's in alignment with God's will, okay, then you ask the second question. What is best among the remaining possibilities? So let's just put that into practice. Say, for example, you have a miserable wretch of a neighbor. I mean, he's a real codger, gives you a hard time, gives your family a hard time, yells, get off the grass, you know, that, that type of guy. So you have a decision to make. Do you forgive him? Do you poison his bushes? Well, that's an easy one. We know we might want to poison his bushes, but you know, we need to forgive him. That's the right thing to do. Okay, let's move on to the second question. What is best? Do I ignore him? I mean, I can forgive him, but that doesn't mean I have to talk to the guy. That's an option. Or do I seek to be kind to him as Christ was kind to me, also a miserable wretch? Probably the latter. Another example. Do I put my kids in competitive baseball? Nothing morally wrong with that. If they're good at baseball, they like baseball, throw them in competitive baseball. That's a good, that's a good thing. So what is best? Is it best for me to put my kid in a league that's going to miss every Sunday during the summer because their coach somehow, someway thinks scouts for the Cubs are going to be looking at 10-year-olds? Probably not a good decision. Should I watch this show? An incredible story, but there's explicit scenes in every episode. Should I spend my money on this and invest in that? Should I take this job for that reason? Paul is saying, judge every single one of your decisions and make it reflective of our gospel worldview and our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, what better prayer can we make for our children, right? That not only would they grow in their love for God and other people, but they would live this life wisely, knowing how to choose what is best among the good. And isn't that a great prayer for ourselves? One of the greatest skills in this Christian life is not only knowing what is right, but also what is best. And lastly, Paul prays that we would live in light of eternity, verses 10 through 11, 10b through 11. Now, if you look at 10b through 11, it kind of seems like, is, is Paul praying these things because he's not sure that this is going to happen? I mean, is, is verse 6, is that wishy-washy? Because that seemed like a, a firm statement Paul gave, and, and now he's praying for these things. Is, is he unsure? Well, we know that's the case because in every single, we know that's not the case rather, because we know in every single lesson up to this point, the Bible people are praying prayers based off things which God has already promised, right? So Paul knows, I mean, if you go to Ephesians, we know that he knows the answer to these things that he's praying for, but he's praying, he has the gall to pray these things because God has already promised them to his church. So for that reason, I think in verses 10 through 11, Paul is calling us, praying that we would live in light of what will be. 
that we would live in light of eternity. For example, if you go to Philippians 3, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, but certainly in Philippians, that was Paul's game plan for his own life. Paul said, I want to be so fixated on that day to come. It's my lighthouse in this life. I want to be so fixated on the weight of glory to come, that upward prize of being found of the Lord Jesus Christ. So fixated on that, I forget what lies behind me. I forget those things that I used to put stock in. I don't pay attention to the temptation to the left or the right because I'm fixated on that. I'm living in light of what will be. And then he calls us, the Philippians two, to join him in that life pattern. Isn't it true, at least I think, one of my greatest problems as a Christian is that I often live like a functional atheist. I'm not an atheist. I love and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the Bible. I believe all the doctrines. But I don't often live in light of such things. At least I struggle to. For no other reason than life gets busy. I mean, again, two little kids that are just, I just have to clean up them all the time. I have to do budgets for the music ministry. <laughs> I have to do my own taxes. I have to, to call this person. I just get caught up with the things around me that I lose sight of what is true. And isn't it true that when we take our eyes off, off that day to come, we lose sight of our mission? We might not lose sight of it completely, but it certainly becomes secondary or maybe fourth in the line. We lose sight of, of the gift and the promises which, which God has given us. We, we lose sight of who he's called us to be. And, and yes, we do begin to struggle because if our eyes are not fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll become fixated on something else. So Paul is saying, I pray that you will fixate your eyes on the day to come, that you would live in light of what will be. And to that end, very quickly, Paul prays that we would live pure and blameless lives, that we would be morally transparent, lives free from stumbling. That will be the case. So live like that now, Paul says. Filled with fruits of righteousness. That is, the character of Christ will become more and more evident in our lives up until that great day to come, when as trees... And God's garden were bending over under the weight of the fruit of Christ on us. That glorious day, all of which is for the glory of the master gardener, God himself, verse 11. Paul begins this prayer with thanksgiving and he ends in doxology. And his prayer in verse 11, I, I pray that you in your lives would be doxological. Certainly in the great day to come but also in the here and now as we wait for that day of glory. What a prayer that Paul prays for fellow sojourners, those that he's in fellowship with, a prayer which is based in the fact that he is absolutely convinced that God will bring about a completion, the good work in which he has started in Paul and those other believers. Friends, you and I are in a fellowship together. We are united together in Christ. We're in this conflict. But Christ is one. And he's given us a mission in light of his victory to live like him and to make him known. And as we follow King Eternal, as we sang this morning, there are so many things that we should be praying for each other. But let us always pray these things that God gives us to pray for one another in Philippians 1, that we would abound in love for God and for each other that we would learn and continue to walk wisely, living in light of eternity.
always confident that God finishes the good work that he starts in us. Amen? Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you so much for my friends in this room and the fellowship we enjoy. I pray that each of us would abound more and more in our love for you and love for each other with all knowledgement and discernment. And as we seek to follow you together, we would have the assured peace and the divine joy that surely you will bring about the completion of the good work in which you have started in us, your men. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.